you would, remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And I will attempt to read verses 1 through 17 without error. So, we will see how this goes. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book, The Genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, wow, and Jeconiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah the father of Shelatil, and Shelatil the father of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Alechem, and Alechem the father of Azar, and Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Elizer, and Elizer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David, were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Praise God for his holy word. Please be seated. So the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus Christ is the sovereign king of all. All power and all authority, they belong to him. He is supreme. Right now, as we are sitting in this comfortable building with air conditioning and padded pews, he is ruling over all of creation. And his kingdom is growing. He is growing his forever kingdom. The divine author of this gospel is the Holy Spirit. For all scripture is God-breathed, And all scripture is useful, even genealogies. The human author is Matthew, the tax collector who is called by Christ to come and follow him. And the scriptures inform us that Matthew left everything he had and followed Jesus. Matthew responded to the Christ command, follow me by leaving everything. As we learn about the genealogy of Jesus Christ today, this is what I want us to think about. We as Christians are to be followers of 
Christ. If you were in Sunday school, you were reminded of that. That if we are a follower of Christ, that means we are responsible for knowing the Word of God. We are followers of Christ based upon the Word of God alone. In Matthew 1, we are looking at the bloodline, specifically the royal line, the royal bloodline of Jesus Christ. All of the names in Matthew 1 are important. But let us cherish this joy. That behind all the human names is Jesus Christ, the pre-existent Son of God, who has no beginning and no end. Matthew left everything and followed Jesus, the sovereign king. And if we are his, this is who we are to follow as well. That he is to be supreme in our life. That when we wake up each and every day, we are reminded by God's word that we are a child of the king and what the king says is to go in our life. So let us study these words concerning the sovereign king, the genealogy of Christ, with not just wanting to get through them. Many people, when you study, when you go into an in-depth study, many people, they want to, let's just jump past this chapter one part. No, let's not do that. With a humble and obedient attitude, let's approach this saying, God has breathed this. Every, every word and every word is therefore important. So if we ignore what God has said, we are in sin. An attitude that it pleases the Lord, that is what we need when we approach the genealogy of Christ. A matter of the heart that shouts, Lord, help me to know you more intimately. Give me wisdom to follow you more closely, all for your name and for your glory. Now Matthew, by way of reminder, is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. Clearly focused upon the truth that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. It makes sense because that's his audience, the Jews. He opens the genealogy of Jesus by providing us the royal line of Christ, pointing to his legal father, Joseph, by adoption. He does this because he wants the Jewish readers to understand that God's covenant with Israel, his promise to David, his promise to Abraham, has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The wait is over. Because Matthew was writing to the Jews, this explains why this is the longest and most evangelistic gospel of the four. Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The words, the book of the genealogy, they find their root in Genesis 5, verse 1. The Jew would have caught on to this. They would have gone back and said, Genesis 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So Matthew begins with the record or the origin of Christ. Matthew 1, 1 has been viewed as the title of this book as well as the purpose of the book. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that if we get who Jesus was wrong, we get everything wrong. Last week I discussed the three main points or purposes of this book which we need to keep in mind today. Purpose one, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Purpose two, Jesus brought forgiveness. Purpose three, Jesus is building the kingdom of heaven. And those words, kingdom of heaven, are distinct only to the gospel of Matthew. He instructs the Jews that the promised Messiah has come. 
He basically begins with, I will show you that Jesus is the Christ. Follow me as I walk you through the bloodline records and prove it to you. Jesus means the Lord is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. Or Yahweh saves. Christ is not His last name. Christ is a title. It means the anointed Messiah or the anointed one. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ is about Jesus, the anointed Messiah. These are the words that Matthew opens up with. These words are theological words to believe about Jesus, as well as apologetic in nature, confronting the unbelief of the Jews. So hold your spot in Matthew 1 and turn with me to John chapter 18. I want you to look in John chapter 18. Let's look in the Gospel of John to hear from Jesus himself about who he is when asked by Pilate before his death. And John 18, beginning in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is king. Jesus put on flesh and came to this world. Why did Jesus come? To bear witness to the truth. The truth that is, he is king. And those who have the truth, they listen to him. If you don't listen to Jesus, you're not of the truth. Matthew opens his gospel by proclaiming to the Jews, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel. Follow my words and learn. R.C. Sproul says, Matthew is taking great pains to show that Jesus is from the line and lineage of David, that he has come to restore the fallen booth of the great king of the Old Testament. You know, many times, even in verse 1, we can immediately forget context. That's why we spent two weeks discussing the introduction to Matthew, looking at context. What Matthew has just done would not be popular at all with the Jews. He opens up this letter by declaring exactly who Jesus Christ is as the long-awaited Messiah, knowing they don't believe him. And he provides proof walking through the bloodline, looking to this is the Messiah. Let me tell you about him. And now that I've told you about him, we'll get into it next week. Basically says, Matthew is basically saying, look, I have told you he's the Messiah. Walk with me as I walk through this letter and I'm going to prove it with what I write, with what has actually happened. That Jesus is king. He traces the genealogy of Jesus to King David and then further back to Abraham, 
looking at God's covenant with David, God's covenant with Abraham. So at the time of this gospel, especially to the Jews, if you wanted to know a man, you knew his family history. This current generation has forgotten many things, and history is one of them. For example, if you were a Jew, you had to prove it if you were to worship in the temple. If you had no proof, you did not enter the temple. The genealogy of Matthew provided great evidence to the fact that Jesus descended from King David and is in line, therefore, to be king. In other words, as they were reading this, they were confronted with the truth, we killed the king. 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be on him. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it to Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So every child of David was a possible Messiah based upon God's covenant. And now Matthew declares to the Jewish people that Jesus is that Messiah. He has come. Furthermore, when Matthew cites Abraham, he is saying that Jesus is the one whom the Lord's blessing would come to all the families of the earth, to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles. That Abraham was the father of God's chosen people. Going back to Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Matthew continues to point and to quote Old Testament passages all throughout this gospel because his audience is that of the Jews. More than 60 times he goes back to the Old Testament. I saw a graph this past week where you talked about Scripture. If you were to lay Scripture all out from Genesis to Revelation, and the line just continually goes like this, all the prophecies that were fulfilled and all the prophecies that were given, you have arcs throughout everything. All these 40 different authors written over these thousands of years, and there's arcs going back to all these prophecies of everything. This was said, this was fulfilled, this was said, this was fulfilled, this was said, this was fulfilled. This is unlike anything because it's God-breathed. He continues to point back over and over and over again, over 60 times to the Old Testament saying and proving that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. He begins by mentioning Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham. He then begins with Abraham's genealogy, following it all the way to Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, or the anointed Messiah. There were some big and well-known names in all of these verses, like Abraham, David, Solomon. This genealogy that Matthew provides is clear. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the king of the Jews. Matthew tells the Jews the Messiah has come. He has told them who he is. And from this foundation, after looking at these 17 verses, 
He wants them to follow and learn of the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, and the redeeming work of Jesus. He's he's laying out this foundation. Look at verse 17 of Matthew 1. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So in verse 17, Matthew provides a breakdown for his readers. 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations from the deportation to Babylon to the anointed Messiah. It's important to note that this genealogy is not comprehensive, but it's arranged in groups of 14. So let's look at these three time periods of the history of Israel. (coughs) Time period one. Abraham to David. You have Abraham, Isaac, Moses, Joshua, and the judges. Was this time period a time of prosperity? This time period included wandering in the desert, slavery, deliverance, God making his covenant with his people, Abraham and Moses. Was a time from Abraham to David? Period two, David to the deportation to Babylon. During this time, Israel desired human kings, not a heavenly one. What do they want? They wanted to be like the rest of the world. They didn't want to be the church. They wanted to look like the world. Being God's chosen people wasn't enough. If we're honest, we struggle with this today because we are all sinners. This time was 14 generations of tragedy, 14 generations of sin, 14 generations of complete failure. You even have David. You have David, a man after God's own heart and God's covenant with David, but mostly people doing what is right in their own eyes. Even David himself, he lusted, he murdered, and he committed adultery. Period three, from the deportation of Babylon to Jesus Messiah. This time period was known as the Dark Ages of Israel. The Dark Ages. The time of exile. That's 42 generations. These names, the people, the history, the promises of God. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. That's 42 generations. This is all of the grace of God being unfolded here. No one was deserving God made a promise. God fulfilled his promise through all those 42 generations. And then Jesus came. Within these 42 generations, you do not find an abundance of obedience by the people of God. You find an abundance of grace by God. These names mentioned are not names in which we read and declare, that makes perfect sense that God would do this. God chose them because they were special. You cannot walk away from that. Not at all. You read the genealogy that Matthew provided and you declare, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. You think about your own life, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. You think about salvation coming upon a soul that you know it's grace, it's all grace. As Blake pointed out three weeks ago, in these names you find something very un-Jewish as well. Matthew, a Jew, writing to Jews, proving that Jesus is Messiah, he places five names of women in the genealogy. 
This was not a Jewish thing to do, but he did it. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Look at verse 3. You have Tamar. Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute and committed sinful incest. Why is Tamar listed? Grace. Verse 5, you have Rahab. Rahab was a Gentile who worked as a prostitute whom God spared by his grace. Verse 5, you have Ruth. Ruth was a Gentile, a Moabite woman, a people who were known for their sexual immorality, and yet Ruth was the grandmother of King David. Why is that in there? Grace. Verse 6, you have Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. David committed adultery with her. Bathsheba would later bring forth Solomon, leading to the Messiah. Why is her name in there? Grace. Verse 16, you have Mary, the wife of Joseph, the virgin with child. It was grace that Mary was chosen. She was a sinner like everybody else. She was unworthy. Why is her name mentioned? Grace. So even here, we find five women mentioned in the origin of Jesus, and not all of them were Jews. I believe this revealed to Matthew's Jewish audience, as well as to us today, that Christ was sent not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. That was from the Abrahamic covenant. Every family on earth will be blessed, not just every Jewish family. Jesus Christ came for the Jews as well as the Gentiles. And this falls under the major truth I already mentioned. Yahweh is a God of grace. 42 generations, lots of names. All sinners except Jesus Christ. Five women, not all Jews. Our God is a God of grace. He's making covenants. He's keeping his promises. Even this morning, I want you to think about that. Sometimes what makes family family is also the difficulties within family because you know everything. You know more than everybody else does because you're around them so much, right? It doesn't matter who you are. When you go to a funeral and someone is speaking about the person who has passed away, they're going to say some good things. But you're also sitting there and you're also thinking, I also know some bad things. Think about your own salvation. Think about everybody that you know. If you are saved today, you are saved because of God's grace and God's grace alone. What a wonderful Savior we serve. Forty-two generations from the passing on of men and women over the years, sharing and proclaiming the good news of Christ, sharing and proclaiming the good news of Christ, God graciously granting salvation. I even hear many people say today, why has Jesus not returned? Why is Jesus allowing all this corruption? Because God is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34, he's still saving sinners. Don't think that you're not a greater sinner than the next. Martin Luther saw the opening list of names, and he said this. He says, he saw Jesus as the son of David who restored the kingdom to Israel. As the son of Abraham, Jesus brought the kingdom of God to the whole world. So as we move into the rest of chapter 1, all the way through chapter 28, we never leave the foundation of chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because if Jesus is not God, who cares about the rest of Matthew? 
Our great God is a God of grace, sending His Son to ransom sinners to Himself. This genealogy is so important today because there will never be another genealogy like this that can be proved. John MacArthur provides wisdom here. He says, It's both interesting and significant that since the destruction of the temple in AD 70, no genealogies exist that can trace the ancestry of any Jew now living. The primary significance of that fact is that those Jews who still look for the Messiah, his lineage to David, could never, ever, ever, ever be established. Jesus Christ is the last verifiable claimant to the throne of David and therefore to the Messianic line. Jesus Christ is the sovereign king of all. He has all authority in heaven on earth. He has all authority over your life. He is the supreme ruler of all that happens. He grows his kingdom by his grace. He is not like every other king who grows their kingdom by law. He grows by grace. What is grace? Grace is the unmerited operation of God in the heart of man affected through the agency of the Holy Spirit. I'll say that again. Grace is the unmerited operation of God in the heart of man affected through the agency of the Holy Spirit. MacArthur said this, which I just cherished. Grace is not merely unmerited favor. It is a favor bestowed on sinners who deserve wrath. Showing kindness to a stranger, that is unmerited favor. Doing good to one's enemies is more the spirit of grace. So when you think about God's saving grace upon your life or my life or someone's life that you know who has been born again, it's not that, oh, look, we have given them something they don't deserve. You need to remember, no, you were an enemy of God, and he has rescued you. How great in understanding that fact. It's more than it's fact. It's unmerited favor. It's unmerited favor doing good to one's enemies. We all deserve God's wrath. God does not owe us grace. In a generation where we think God owes us everything, God doesn't owe us anything but wrath. We are not deserving of God's love. Think about the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. No one has ever done this for a millisecond. Not a millisecond. We all deserve God's wrath. Salvation is not a season without sin. It is a never-ending season of God's grace upon saints who still sin. As Christians, we are in Christ. We are in Christ because of grace. Grace is not a one-time experience or event, but a foundation in which we live upon. So a logical question for us this morning is, am I in Christ or do I just know about Christ? To put it in today's language, do you know about God? could be reference to maybe you're just a fan of God, but you're not a follower of God. Do you actually follow what God has said, or you just know what God has said? 
We looked at 42 generations today. 42 generations of names. It's been over 2,000 years since Christ ascended into heaven. But Christ will return. And he has commanded all to repent and all to believe. Christ has informed us through even just the Gospel of Matthew alone, you need to be ready because I am coming back. We have, he has instructed us that we are to work, working on His kingdom, building His kingdom, doing what He has told us to do. Only those who do the will of the Father will be saved. Because those who experience God's gift of salvation, they have been born again and they live different lives. To be born again and not to live a different life is to not be born again. These lives are not free from sin, but they are lives who have patterns. The overall pattern of the Christian is wanting to please the Lord. Can you imagine living your whole life here saying, hey, I said this prayer, I did this, I have been following the Lord, I believe Jesus is God, and your life looked nothing like following Jesus. We see this in movies all the time, and our natural conclusion is that person is a hypocrite. That's why we look into the law of God and we examine our own life. There is no way that God graciously saves a sinner, conforms that person more into Christ, and the person who's conformed more into the image of Christ doesn't image Christ. Have you called on Christ? Are you covered by the grace of God? Are you living for the glory of God? Another question may be good for us is, how is my life different no matter how long you've been saved? Can you look back over your life and see a pattern of faithfully living for the Lord? Think of Matthew. What was Matthew doing before Jesus called him? He sat at a tax booth. History would describe this as a man who didn't have many friends because he swindled money for his own self. Second Peter 3, verse 18, you may want to write that down. It says, we are called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says these words, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and now and for the day of eternity. Amen. If you want to glorify God with your life, you will grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't be the individual who says, I want to glorify God with my life, and then you have nothing to back it up with. We've got enough of those people. Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord? Because we have a responsibility to grow up to mature. The grace of God is marvelous. Grace is not merely unmerited favor. It's favor bestowed on sinners who deserve the wrath of God. When we think about what we deserve and the opportunity that lies before us, that God has not only saved us, but he's given us the privilege to look more and more and more like our Savior, what does it mean if we look at that and say, Jesus, I'm not interested? Our study in the Gospel of Matthew it's all about the good news of Jesus Christ. It is a study of Christology, a study of soteriology. It's a study of theology proper. 
Christology, you're looking at the person of Christ, a study of God the Son, over and over and over. It's a study of soteriology, a study of salvation, not according to man's opinion, not according to a gospel track. It's a study of salvation according to God's Word and not man's opinion. Theology proper, you are studying the character of God. When you see Christ and how He lived and His work and everything, He's the exact imprint and the nature of God the Father. And at the end, He says, I'm going to send a helper. A helper will come. He will clothe you. You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is a study of Christ. It's a study of salvation. It's the study of the character of God and what we are to believe as God's people. And so it's just a warning for us today and also I hope an encouragement, maybe a spurring on of your own life that if you don't desire to know what God's Word says, what you're saying is, I don't desire to know God or please Him. I mean, that's it. I don't like beating around the bush. My wife knows that. My children know that. If we're saying we don't have time to know what God has breathed, you're saying you don't have time for God. Do you think someone who doesn't want to know and to be around other brothers and sisters in Christ, someone who doesn't want to please the Lord with their life, what makes you think that you're going to be ready when you get to heaven? If heaven is all about God, this life is to be all about God. Matthew 1, verse 21 We'll get there next week. It says, She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. This is what we need to grasp and never forget and never get over it. Never move on from it, but remain abiding in it. God sent his son to the world to save sinners. You and I are sinners. Are you ready for the return of Christ? Are you sure of your salvation? 2 Peter 1.10 says, Make your calling and your election sure. At some point we've said, It's not okay to doubt your salvation. Brother and sister, if you're doubting your salvation, you have a source to go to. You go to what God has breathed, and you examine yourself. You ask yourself questions that God has given us. I would much rather you doubt your salvation and know that you're saved and work through that trial than to say, no, I'm good. I did this in the past and your life looked nothing like Jesus. It says, make your calling and election sure. Peter said that. Peter said lots of things that you just kind of like, I, I can't believe you opened your mouth. I say lots of things which I can't believe I opened my mouth. But Peter is saying, are you sure of your salvation? Make your calling and your election sure. If you're not even concerned about your own salvation, you need to be concerned about where you go when you die. Even in my own life, I do not doubt my salvation now, but I desire to please the Lord. And when I sin, I repent of that sin. Day in and day out, I still sin. We all still sin. If you, are, if you have been born again, it doesn't matter if you're in the youth group, and you've been baptized and you're young, if you have been born again, 
are you growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're a parent in this room, you still have a brother, a sister. You should know their salvation. But if you're specifically a parent, you should know, no matter the age of your children, you're still responsible in pointing them to Christ. You never stop pointing people to Christ because they've grown up or you think that they're older and they can handle anything. Trust me. Are you growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord? Christ came to save people from their sin. And if we are His, we are to live according to His commands. We are not to spend a life of wasting it, wasting our life, filling our life with things that we think is matter. We don't elevate what we think above what God has said. We spend time pleasing the Lord. My prayer is that we would all be ready because Christ is coming again and He is not coming to lay down his life. He's already done that. He's coming to judge and gather his children. And if we have a life that looks nothing like caring about the things of God, if we have a life that looks nothing like I desire to do this because of the wonderful grace I have received from God, even in a sermon, if we think, man, this is so boring, or I I don't want to listen to the Word of God. Like, let's just skip over that and go to... We can't skip over anything that God has said, just like a child should never skip over anything a parent says. We are all called to be ready to know Christ, to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because Christ is coming back to judge. What does that mean? What does it mean when... Scripture says he is, he is the judge. He is a good judge. He is a righteous judge. That he's going to look and he's going to declare you righteous or unrighteous. He's going to say you are guilty or you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Because on that day, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, I did these things for you. I went to D-Now. I went on a mission trip. I, I did these things But the Lord's going to say, depart from me. I never, never knew you. If you're a child of God, the Lord will conform you more into the image of Christ. That's why we need to make our calling and our election sure. As a Christian, I don't look at something that I said to the Lord 12, 13, 14, 15 years ago. I don't look at what I did for the Lord many, many, many years ago. I look about what the Lord is doing now and all the sins the Lord is showing and revealing in my life now. I look at his grace upon me now and I see how gracious and loving and kind he is that I'm still here, that he has not taken me. I look at the overflowing mercies of what he provides in this church, in in my family, among people that I know. I think, how can God still do this? Because it's grace, grace, grace. I'm overwhelmed with the grace of God. So as we walk through looking at the life of Jesus, let us be overwhelmed with the grace of God. Let us get into who Jesus Christ is. And you're going to see the responses from people today that we hear when we talk to them about Jesus and from them, how the Jews responded. I can't believe Jesus did this. I can't believe Jesus did that. How dare you say that? But Jesus is God. Father, I thank you for this morning. What a wonderful reminder of your faithfulness that you are a covenant-keeping God. 
42 generations. That number is still counting today. 42 generations of your grace, of your grace, of your grace, of everyone rebelling against you, doing what is right in their own eyes, being conceived in sin, born sinners, separated from you, and we find your grace, your grace, your grace. That you sent your son to this earth to save sinners. Jesus Christ is the anointed Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. There is no other name by which we must be saved. Father, deepen our understanding as we study this book. Help us to have a better understanding, but help us to respond with that greater understanding of who you are, with great reverence and worship for who you are that we would be a people who love your commands and love fulfilling your commands, that you would be very gracious and slow in revealing our sin, that we would be faithful to repent of our sins and to follow you. Lord, forgive us when we have been building our kingdom so much and we have thought so little of you, that we sing songs talking about cherishing you in our hearts and our mind, about you being our treasure. And the only thing that we're thinking about is what we're going to eat for lunch or when's it's going to be over. When can we get in the car and go and I can do whatever I want and yet our life is to be all about you. Even today, Lord, you're so gracious. We have sinned in our thoughts and our attitudes and wanting our kingdom come. Father, you're so gracious. We have every excuse in the book, and you know us, and yet, as your children, you're doing all things to work together for our good. How gracious is that? Lord, forgive us where we have sinned. Lord, for those who are here, Lord, I pray that you would convict of sin of those who are lost. Draw them to yourself. May they be overwhelmed about the fact that their life is so much about themselves. That it's what they think about. It's what they love. Show them their sin. May they live for you. It's in Christ's name we pray and ask. Amen.